Welcome back to Trope Stories, a show about photographers, creatives, streamers, makers, entrepreneurs, and their personal journeys. I'm Terry Mayday, and on today's show is Ron Timahan. Ron is a professional photographer based in London, and his growing list of titles now includes co-founder and executive producer. Specializing in cityscape and portrait photography, Ron has established a varied client list that consists of commissioned work for brands including Apple, Adidas, Adobe, Canada Goose, Nike, and Sony. Ron signed a European ambassadorship contract with Sony and an insider contract with Adobe, and he continues to work closely as he grows his partnership with both brands. Ron's work has been featured in several global publications, including British Vogue, GQ, Hype Beast, High Snobiety, The Evening Standard, and Digital Camera Magazine. Ron is also the co-founder of Audax, an agency that creates compelling commercial work for brands such as EA Sports, while also making sure to give back in some way. Across multiple projects, Audax has raised approximately $250,000 from various charities in just one year. Ron's first solo photography book entitled London Fog is sold globally by renowned bookstores such as Waterstones and online through Amazon. London Fog was featured as one of the Times Photography Books of the Year 2019, which subsequently led to multiple features in traditional press such as ITV News. Throughout Ron's career, he has continued to utilize social media to share his work, which led to his online following growing to more than 60,000 followers. This has opened up opportunities for him to endorse brands such as Prada, give talks and workshops, and consult for brands and agencies who are looking to further their online presence. This is his story. Hey, Ron, how are you? Hey, Terry. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. We're uh, shooting at Trope HQ in Chicago in the East Garfield Park neighborhood. You're in London. There's a picture on page 130 in your book. It's a great overview shot of London with the water cutting right through. Is this the vantage point from your neighborhood? Yeah, so that photo is directly above where I live now, which is quite nice. So that neighborhood is Greenwich, right? Yeah, that's correct. So Greenwich is based in the southeast of London. Uh, yeah, it's got lovely parks by the river. Um, so yeah, it's been good. Good area. Looks like a great spot. We're going to talk a lot about your photography today and, and a lot about the projects that you're involved with. And obviously, we're going to talk about your, your beautiful book, London Fog. But I want to ask you first just about a post. Uh, this is from November 22nd, 2020. And I remember screenshotting this and thinking that this just felt like you. It didn't feel like you were being preachy or giving advice. It just felt like something that's just uh, a part of your personality. And the post reads, your art is not about how many people like your work. Your art is about if your heart likes your work and if your soul likes your work. It's about how honest you are with yourself, and you must never trade honesty for reliability. Tell me about that caption. Um, so that caption, it came from a radio station that I listen to almost daily uh, called Selection, and they sort of encompass the mindset uh, that I have as a creative as well. Um, but I think, yeah, just the general meaning is don't jump on trends, follow what your heart wants to produce. Um, I think a lot of people nowadays find it hard to stand out or be unique or have their own voice. And I think this just sums it up. 
you being yourself is what makes you unique. So follow that and the rest will follow. That's great. And you grew up in London. Can you tell us about, about your mom and dad? Tell us about your family. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I was actually born in Swindon, which is um, a bit further north than London. But okay. um, I moved to London when I was very young. So I've, I've grown up here pretty much. London is home to me. Um, yeah, and both my parents uh, work here as medical professionals. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what they do. That's cool. And, and you have a younger brother as well, right? I do. Yeah, I have a younger brother. He's 24 now. And um, he's also in the creative, creative arts, which, which makes me happy. Oh, that's very <laughs> he's gonna cool. He's going to go into law, but um, quickly changed his mind. Uh, and now he's excelling. He's doing really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, proud of him. That's great. I'm thinking back to the summer of 2020, Ron, and just thinking as, as the race conversation took center stage globally, did the way your parents raise you, did the way that your family shaped you into the person that you are, did that, did that help you prepare for that moment? I guess, could anything help you prepare for that? Uh, it's an interesting question. I think it definitely played a part in how I processed uh, I guess racial um, racial problems when they happened. Uh, I mean, growing up, my parents always told me how it is. They said it how it is. You know, they said you're gonna have to work twice as hard. Um, mm. You've got to watch how you express your your anger or express your concerns because um, it could be seen as aggressive. Uh, all these conversations are conversations I had growing up. Um, so when these encounters did happen. I was somewhat prepared. You can never be fully prepared because it, it always affects you differently. It feels, it, yeah, you can't really prepare for how it feels. It really, really does hurt. Um, but you, I always try and keep in mind what my parents have said, and that normally helps. I'm, I'm thinking back to when you were, you know, a youngster and, and the impact that your family had on your life. How grateful are you? for your parents and, and for your family and, and your grandparents? I'm super grateful for all of them. Uh, they've all taught me different things in different ways, but I think ultimately they just want me to be a kind human being. I think that's ultimately what they, what they want to share um, and they want me, want me to do. So that's what I try to do uh, as much as possible. Uh, I mean, obviously both my parents are doctors, so that's sort of in their nature and in their profession. So I guess that's been imprinted on me as well. Um, I never try and rub people up the wrong way. Uh, I try and be kind to people. I try and help people as much as possible. Um, and ultimately, like, the world is tough. It's tough out here. And if I can help make someone's day a bit better or make life a little bit easier, then that's what I'll do. Ron, as a, as a photographer, you've traveled all over the world, epic locations, working with global brands on really high-profile projects. But I want to ask you about you and your camera during the walks and the protests during the summer of 2020. There's a couple gentlemen standing next to the bus, or perhaps they're on the bus. Can you tell me about these images? I mean, that was during the death of George Floyd, and uh, London had a series of protests. I obviously went to multiple of them, not only to go and show my support, but to also document it. And um, that moment in particular with the, with the bus drivers, was a very special moment to me. It was in a very, very populated place of London. It was very busy there. And the buses were trying to get through and just do their job, but they couldn't because of the tens of thousands of people. 
protesters were just saying, just beep your horn, show some support. And um, in the end, they, they turned off the whole bus and they got out and came and protested with us. And it was just like, it was just such an eruptive moment. It was brilliant. As we look at more images, I'm seeing words on the signs from supporters, stop killing us, no justice, no peace. I, I could point to so many of these, Ron. I wanna ask you about this image. Don't let history repeat itself. Where did you shoot this shot? So that shot was actually at Parliament Square. Again, a very political point of London. Yeah, that photo is special to me just because one, obviously the sign saying, don't let history repeat itself, says it all. Right. But the fact that there are so many people there and the time that it was, I mean, this was happening during global pandemic. So we were actually in a full scale lockdown at this point. Nobody was meant to be out, let alone that many people. So I think that photo just sums up how adamant people were to get their voices heard and they weren't just going to stand back and let time pass it by. They wanted to make history. It's very, very powerful. I'm so glad you were there with your camera. Yeah, so was I. <laughs> Have you experienced racism in, in your own life personally or, or even professionally? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, racism comes in different forms, right? So you've got the microaggressions, the stuff that happens every day. Um, I mean, occasions where I'll go to the shop with uh, a white friend and I'll be the one purchasing something, but the person serving won't even look at me once. They'll just talk to my friend the entire time. Mm -hmm. And my friend's like, hey, he's the one buying it. Why are you talking to me? Um, and that happens almost daily. Um, those kind of occurrences, you sort of suppress those. And... Um, push it to push it to one side. You try not to believe that it is what it is a lot of the time, but then when it happens multiple times, then you start realizing there's a pattern here and it's not all in your imagination. Um, but then it goes to the extremities. You have um, physical abuse, the racial slurs, uh, which I've had as well. Um, and that happens in personal and professional life, unfortunately. Ron, when you were, when you were shooting during the protests and, and, the, and the walks, there was so much emotion there. Do you remember having a moment, and you were doing an incredible job capturing images that conveyed emotion and conveyed perhaps what you were feeling and even what others were feeling at the time. But do you remember a moment where you were like, I have more to say. This isn't enough, I, I wanna do more. Was there a moment like that? There was, yeah. Um, I mean, I've been to protests in the past and mm. normally you go, you make your mark, you get hurt, but then there's seldom the change that you want. So me being uh, the professional that I am and the creative that I am, I wanted to use what I, what I know and what I can do to help keep the conversation open and to keep sp spreading the message. Right. So um, I think just seeing the amount of people there the different races that were there, the different ages. Um, it was just such a beautiful thing and it just showed me that people want to help. Uh, people want to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, off the back of that, numerous things have happened on my end anyway. Um, I mean, I did, I did a project with, with Vogue, uh, British Vogue here in the UK. And um, that was a very special shoot for me because uh, myself and Miss Anne, who was a lead photographer, that shoot 
actually made history because it was the first time that a black male had shot the front cover of British Vogue in 105 years. Wow. So it went down in history. Yeah, it creates a massive storm. The photo was of Marcus Rashford and Adora Aboa, who's uh, a women's activist in mental health as well, mm. and um, an amazing model. And so just by nature, the people who were starring in the shoots were people who had been fighting for change for, for years. And um, yeah, wow. it was a very proud moment to be part of such um, an incredible crew. I mean, it was the first time I'd been on set and I'd seen that many black people. Like, it was kind of surreal. <laughs> I'm so happy um, for you. Yeah. I'm so happy for that opportunity. And I'm also thinking, do you think that that's, is there a connection between your personal work leading to a professional opportunity? I mean, when you were shooting in the streets, you were there because it, it mattered. You had something to say and you wanted to capture this, this moment that is conversations continue today. It's not, it's not a fleeting moment, but yet the, the crowds and the, the power of that emotion and scale, I think too, was important to capture. But did that lead you to the Vogue opportunity? 100%, yes. So uh, it just goes to show personal work is very important. Do stuff that's passionate to you mm. uh, and it can open doors that you would never have imagined. And this was a prime example of that. Uh, Vogue had seen the images that Miss Anne had captured at the protest. And um, he in turn then recommended me to come and join the shoot. And they looked at my imagery that I shot at the protest and then my previous body of work. And that's what led to them signing me on. So uh, yeah, personal work is definitely important. Congratulations on that. But let's move right into another project, which is incredibly exciting, Ron. There's been so much awareness of your recent film called Fortitude. How did this come about? Uh, so yeah, Fortitude came from the protest really as well. Um, I bumped into a good friend of mine, Matt, Matt Rendell, who um, he runs a production company. Uh, amazing filmmaker, does work for the likes of BBC and Clarks, lots of different brands. Yeah. And uh, he said, this is incredible what we're witnessing here. And I said, yeah, it is. And just in that moment, it was like, we should make a documentary. And I was like, yeah, we should, let's do it. And that was it. A one word to describe being black. Fortitude. Being black is, if nothing else, an example of what the meaning of fortitude is. So many black men and women are walking wounded. They don't always realize because we've had to throw on so many different types of armor. You need fortitude. And being black is fortitude. And so, yeah, we've been uh, filming over the last year and we've picked a range of different people of colour. So we've got doctors in there, we've got um, actresses, we've got dancers, we've got philanthropists, um, all of very high calibre, um, were high calibre in the industries and they've come out and spoken about numerous different things uh, regarding to race in the UK specifically. So 
yeah, it's been it's been an incredibly emotional journey so far. And uh, yeah, we've dropped the trailer and the website now, uh, which you can find at fortitude.co.uk, shameless plug. <laughs> but um, yeah, very excited. There's a lot of conversations happening, happening around it at the moment, and uh, it should create a storm when it's released. You serve as one of the executive producers of the film, and you partnered with Treehouse Films and your creative agency called Audax. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I founded, co-founded uh, Audax uh, just over a year ago now. And um, that was a partnership between myself and uh, my partner Chuck Gull, who we met actually through Adidas work. So uh, Chuck used to work very heavily with Adidas, um, creating events, project managing. Mm. And I was working for Adidas as, as a photographer, and that's how we met. That was maybe five, six years ago. And um, yeah, we we both decided, look, we've got to a point in our professional careers now where we've worked with some of our favorite brands, some of the biggest brands on the planet, but we feel like there's something missing still. And so what all that says is a way to create compelling content with top and high-end brands, but also give back where we can. And so when we're coming up with strategies uh, for, for these brands, we always try and factor in something that can give back to either charity or community. And so, yeah, we've done some cool projects over the last, yeah, last year. And uh, I think we've raised around £250,000 for charity so far, which is cool. The trailer for Fortitude looks incredible. I can't wait to see the full film. Can you share a little bit about the story and whose voices and, and faces do we meet in it? It's weird because we didn't actually put together a story. We, we sort of held these interviews with with the cast and we said, speak about whatever you want. Um, I mean, we had a guy called Radford, who was a director and he was asking questions, but they were a wide range of different questions. It was only when we received the answers from all of the people involved that we found similarities in things they were saying and um, topics that they were talking about. And so that is what made up the narrative of the, of the film. Yeah, incredibly powerful stuff. Yeah, I can't wait to show it. I mean, do you look at this moment in history as a pivotal time? I mean, did you learn along the journey of the film that people are ready to kind of learn and turn a corner? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I learned so many different things in this process. Um, not only about other people, how they've handled their racist encounters, but also um, just stuff about myself that I didn't realize I had buried or I didn't know how to process before, which was something I wasn't expecting at all. Um, wow. And ultimately, it just made me feel proud at the end of it because, um, I mean, that's why we call the documentary Fortitude. It's courage and pain or adversity. And that is exactly what they'd been through. It's what we've all been through. So, um, yeah, incredible moments for sure. Ron, I'm sure there were moments that were difficult, challenging, to say the least. Were there moments when you were making the film that were inspiring? Were there moments that ever were overcoming with emotion? Yeah, all the way through. I mean, every single day was was tough, like for the whole crew. I mean, there were multiple points where some of the crew were crying would get home from the from the day of shooting. Would cry. I cried nearly nearly most days. Like it was it was tough. Um, I mean, 
there were definitely proud moments just because of who the cast were. I mean, we've got prolific people like Sabrina Elba. Um, we've got Miss Anne Harriman, who we did Vogue together. We've got doctors, we've got, I mean, there's a whole range of different people who are excelling in what they're doing, but they're carrying all this pain. And so to hear how they've overcome it and to see how far they've got, um, just one, made you feel proud, but then two, made you feel really sad. So it was such a, I don't know, a mental battle. I mean, my mum is also part of this documentary and uh, she's a doctor in the NHS, as I've mentioned earlier. And um, she obviously she spoke about her professional experience and some of the problems she had in the NHS. Um, but I think when she was talking about her sons, AKA me and my brother, mm. that was really tough because she would tell stories that I remember vividly as a child, but I didn't know it was because of the color of our skin. That's why that was happening. Um, and so, yeah, it got to the point where I had to leave the room because my mum, she was meant to be talking to, <laughs> to the director, but she kept looking at me and it was messing up the shots. <laughs> so I had to leave because she just, yeah, she couldn't, she couldn't handle it, yeah. Wow. It's, it's incredibly emotional just to hear you describe that and interviewing your mom is a dynamic. I'm sure that's the first time that's ever happened. As hard as it yeah. was, and there were days or moments where you were crying, fellow crew members are, are so moved in the moment, but yet as hard as it was, you and your team, Audax, Treehouse Films, your whole team made a decision to tell this story. As hard as that is, you jumped in. For sure. I mean, that's the thing, it's, it's tough to hear, it's tough to, it's even tougher to say. I think that's what people don't get, it's like, it's not easy for somebody to talk out about this stuff. Like it, it, every time you bring it up, it, it's deep, deep pain. It's years, it's your, your relatives, your grandparents, your ancestors' pain that is what you're feeling. So it's not as simple as, oh, it's because I'm black. It's like, you really don't want that to be the case. So there's not, that's, that's why you don't really want to say it. But um, yeah, it's, it's tough <laughs> to put it simply, yeah. Ron, everything you went through in 2020, that, that year was intense for so many reasons. As we were getting ready to turn the clocks and say hello to 2021, you posted something that's pretty remarkable in the face of that year. And your post reads, another of my favorite images captured this year. It's strange that in a period of such pain and adversity, some of my most proud and joyful moments were fostered. One positive word to describe this year for me would be empathetic. Can you just tell me your feelings as you hear that again? Yeah, I mean, it'd been a horrible year for many and um, it was just my way of just spreading a bit of positivity and a bit of hope. Uh, I, I like to do that with my social media anyway. I think there's enough negativity in this world. Uh, I don't really want to add to it, so if I can, say something that gives somebody a bit of hope or get them through the day, then yeah, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to do that, to be honest. All right, let's back up a little bit and talk about the early days of your photography journey as you were starting and you were on the streets. And I'm, I'm so curious, everyone looks at the end game and you're already doing incredibly well, well known for your photography and and your creative talents but in the early days 
How far were you walking? How long were you out? I mean, what what were those days like? Uh, uh, grueling, just ah, oh, tough, very very tough. But it had to be done. I mean, it's funny. Like people always look at well, people always want to know what the shortcut is, but hard work is the shortcut. <laughs> hard work literally is the shortcut. Um, there's no way around it to be honest. So. Yeah, it was hours walking. I mean, I, I would meet up with uh, some of my photography friends, such as Toby Shinobi, um, Opie, Lucy, and would shoot for hours. I don't know how we did it, because I try and do that now, and my, all my bones and my muscles are aching, but yeah, we would try and do that maybe five, six times a week, just trying to practice as much as possible, find new locations, regularly posting on social media. Yeah, it was a hustle. What was it though, because you know, the images of London have existed for a long time and you were starting to bring an incredibly fresh, dynamic perspective to the city that you grew up in. What was it about trying to present London, but of course trying to present it in your way? Uh, do you, know, you know what, it was, it was just what appealed to me. It was what I liked to photograph or what I liked to see. And I just tried to shoot more of that stuff. So obviously my background being in music, I used to play a lot of jazz and for me, jazz is sad, but also beautiful. The stuff I like in jazz anyway. Um, and so I try to replicate that within my photography. So often I'll look for foggy scenes or I look for rain, things that are often perceived as sad, but I try and show the beauty in that. Uh, and London itself is a very photogenic city. Uh, of course, it's been photographed millions of times. And so for me to sort of stand out from the crowd was to add my own personal outlook on it. And uh, that's that's what I hope, hope hopefully done. And and what about just getting out there? You're talking about hard work is the shortcut. What about like learning and experimenting and, and making mistakes along the way? Oh yeah, yeah, mistakes are the best thing. <laughs> I used to hate them, honestly. <laughs> I mean, no one likes to, <laughs> of course. to make mistakes, but that's how you learn the best, like learn the fastest and you learn the most from them. So, um, yeah, messing up your shutter speed, missing focus, all of that stuff, um, it happens to everyone, you know? And if you can improve on that and make sure you don't make those mistakes next time, then that's a lesson well learned. You're well known as a photographer and it's natural to, to think of you using your camera. You know, you're, you're an artist and your tool is your camera. I'm curious as you started to discover the, the business side of photography and, and what, what was that like? Um, the business side was probably a very steep learning curve. Uh, I remember having a lot of questions that couldn't be answered until you experienced it, <laughs> which is right. a bit frustrating. Right. Um, but all in all, it's been an amazing journey. I think being able to be my own boss now and to work on my own schedule is something I'd always wanted. Uh, obviously, that comes with responsibility, difficulties, um, and it's not an easy gig. There are a lot of people who want to, well, they like the idea of going freelance and running their own company, right. but it's a lot tougher than it sounds. Um, they think you can work less hours, not the case, you end up working probably double. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a journey. The business side includes endless things to do securing work, estimating the fees and expenses and invoicing and, and on and on, which all sounds super fun, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
But what was the hardest part for you? I think the hardest part probably comes down to money management and making sure that you have enough money to, in case of dark times or, or difficult periods. So I, I tried to go freelance as soon as I graduated from uni and I completely flopped. Like it was tragic. <laughs> it was so, so really? bad. Um, yeah. And it was just because that I didn't have the, con the consistent income stream. I didn't have enough consistent clients. I was getting the one-off jobs here and there. And um, mm. I didn't have a savings to dip into in case of late payments, which is another thing that drives most creatives up the wall. Um, right. And so learning all of that was, was a learning curve. But yeah, I think now that I've got to the position where I am, I've got that income stream, I've got the savings there so that when a rainy day does happen or I'm paid a month late or payment terms in 90 days, all, all of that drama, I'm able to up, pay for it up front and then uh, expense it back. So um, that's something that I would advise anyone who's starting out um, as a freelancer just to save as much money as they can when they're doing those early jobs. Get yourself a nice pool of savings and it will make everything so much easier. Very good advice, Ron. So you're growing your business primarily through Instagram and you're 10,000 followers, 20,000, 30,000, you're past 60,000 followers now, which is amazing. But I'm curious, as you started to grow your following, you're attracting clients, big time global brands. What was that like? Did that start to feel like pressure? Because the early days you're in the hunt and you're on the streets and it's all for you. And now it's for a client. What did that feel like? Uh, it changes, I think. It adapts because I remember the first time I did my first professional shoot, the first shoot I ever got paid money for, and I was terrified. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to mess up the shots. They're not going to like it. They're not going to pay me. Uh, so there was that pressure there initially that you needed to prove yourself. Um, it then goes to the next step where you shoot for a brand for the first time. And uh, again, that pressure is there. The same worries come back and you do it, you prepare for it, you shoot for it and it goes well. Then it just keeps rising and rising and that, that build up takes time to, to learn how to handle, I think. But the way I've right. sort of done it is that it, I just try and put more time into the preparation. Um, I mean, what's that saying is, uh, if you if you don't prepare, what's it? if you don't prepare, you prefer, prepare to fail, I think it is. Um, yes. And so yeah, yes. I, I put 10 times more time into preparation now. So if a client does come to me and they say, hey, look, I've seen what you've done with British Vogue, instantly my heart's like, oh my God, like, <laughs> am I gonna be able to, to, to do them justice or do them proud? But then I ask them, hey, what exactly right. about that shoot um, or about these sets of images did you like? Um, or what from my body of work do you really like? And then that way it gives me more information um, to create something that's on point or on brand with what they want. Um, so yeah, I think just preparing yourself so that on the shoot day, you're just executing. You're not trying to uh, faff around or work things out on a day. Right, but preparation and asking questions and feeling some of that stress is certainly human nature. I mean, I'm, I'm 
at the point in my career and I still feel it on shoot days. I still feel it. I want to give our clients the best possible story and images to tell those stories and mm. with whether we're doing it through editing or cinematography or sound design or music choices or, you know, having the delicacy of an emotional moment followed by something really powerful. It's like you're trying to bring all these elements together. And I think pressure is, I'm not going to admit to you that I like it, but I think there's a benefit to it. I, I 100% agree. So um, growing up, obviously playing music, I had to perform on stage a lot. And so I've taken an aspect from that, which I now use in my day to day life. And um, I was, I went to a masterclass with a, a gentleman who was in the Lion King musical theatre production. And um, mm. it was about performance. And he said, nerves and pressure are a great thing. And I remember hearing that thinking, what on earth is he on about? But he said, right. it means that you care and you turn that nerves and adrenaline, uh, sorry, nerves and fear into adrenaline. Um, so just that simple mind switch can really, really help. So now when I am feeling nervous, uh, I take it on board and it just makes sure, it makes me feel like I'm on my toes a little bit more and I'm ready to react to things that might come up. So yeah, don't, don't overthink it. Just learn how to process that feeling. Um, and just know in the end, like it's going to be fine. Nine times out of 10 is absolutely fine. You've done work like this before. Right. Um, just trust right. yourself. Very well said. Talk to me about the importance of some of your long-term clients and just building relationships by proving yourself time and time again. Yeah, do you know what? Especially during the last year and a half. I mean, you can have jobs that come now and again, but to have a really strong relationship with a client who you can ultimately create consistent work for, um, but two, you also have the ability to pitch work to them or to try and implement your own ideas. And I think that's something that I'm really okay. excited about doing. Um, so if they come to you with a brief, you're able to give your feedback and say, hey, this works, but this could be cool as well. Or even if you have unique ideas that you want them to sponsor, all of that stuff comes from having a good relationship and long-term relationship with a, with a client. They're looking for your perspective, right? I mean, they've seen your body of work. They want your perspective. I mean, a brief is one thing but then you have to bring that brief to life. Exactly, and I think once you've proved yourself once, twice, three, four times, they start to trust you even more, and then they ask for your advice, which is always nice. Ron, it is an unfair question to ask you one of your most epic shoots, <laughs> or, or perhaps the most epic shoot, um, but I know that you traveled to 26 countries in 2019 alone which is just when you stop and think about that, it's, is incredible. But you did have a trip to Morocco during that time, right? Can you talk a little bit about who that was for and what was it like on that journey? Uh, yeah, do you know what? That, that Morocco trip was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. It was insane. Wow. Um, I mean, that was for Samsung for the release of the new uh, S20 phone. And um, yeah, they sent me out to Morocco in the Sahara Desert to shoot the Milky Way on the mobile phone, which was crazy because I was thinking, how is a mobile phone going to capture stars? But I managed to make it work and it did, which was amazing. So yeah, it was the campaign imagery for that, uh, a video behind the scenes as well. And yeah, it was just phenomenal. I think like I love traveling. Traveling is something 
that I'm very passionate about. Uh, meeting people from different backgrounds. I mean, I heard somebody say recently that one of the best things in photography is that you get the world's best visa because you're able to get into situations with people that you would never have otherwise. And I, I just love that as testament for that. So um, travels, I love it. There are negative sides to it as well. I mean, it's incredibly tiring. Um, people close to me, when I say, oh my gosh, I'm so tired, that trip was amazing. But they always all think I'm complaining, but until you travel for work and that extensively, you won't really understand it. I mean, for example, the Morocco trip, I had an average of one hour sleep every single night for seven days. So by the end of that trip, I was broken, um, enduring blistering heats in the desert and freezing cold at night. So it does take its toll, but I'll do it every day. I don't mind. <laughs> it's worth it. Just remember, man, hard work is the shortcut. You told me that. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Let's jump into your book, Ron. London Fog, congratulations. This is your first solo book, starting with the cover. There's an image here of Westminster Bridge and it feels very familiar and at the same time it feels entirely new. Tell me about this image. The front cover is probably one of my favorite foggy London images. It was actually the first time I ever shot fog in London. So, yeah, I was super excited about even just capturing the fog. It was, it was, it was quite funny because I was on the way to work, um, my first day of working at Apple. And um, obviously I wanted to get there on time, but as soon as I was on the way and I saw the fog, I was like, oh, I, <laughs> I had to get off the train. And um, I ended right. up turning up to work like two hours late, which was really bad on the first day, but I couldn't help it. <laughs> On page four, I love this image of Tower Bridge here. And I'm looking at the background of the Gherkin building there. And there's the mixture of new and old architecture, but it's also just a dynamic skyline that's changing every year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, looking at this photo now, the Gherkin is the tallest building behind Tower Bridge. And <laughs> I think there are six odd buildings that have gone up that are taller than the Gherkin now, much taller actually. So um, yeah, I think wow. it's important to capture capture things when you can, because it. I mean, cities like London and Chicago, New York, for example, changed at such a rapid rate that when you look back on this stuff now, it's almost nostalgic. On page ten, I love this shot along the River Thames here. Again, shot in the fog, Ron. But there's some verbiage on the left side that I think helps kind of frame the early days of your creativity. I was a musician when I was younger and played the trumpet. I traveled with different bands and orchestras and as I was traveling, that is when photography kind of took my eye. What, what happened as you were playing trumpet and you were traveling and all of a sudden it just kind of clicked in for you, this, your ability to see the world in a different way? It was weird. I think because at the time, obviously my main focus was music and we were doing relentless practicing. It was five, six hours of practice every single day, touring, playing shows. Um, photography almost felt like a way of processing that and um, expressing myself in a different way that wasn't my, effective, my, my job effectively. So um, yeah, it felt like a bit of an escape and a bit of fun. There wasn't the same pressures that music had. Um, I wasn't trying to take photos for 
an audience, kind of like what I do now. <laughs> um, there was it was just right. fun. It was free, uh, and so that made me fall in love with photography. As we look through the next series of images here, can you, in that context, can you help inspire a nice music choice for these pages? Um, yeah, like, I mean, Miles Davis kind of blew that album for me. Yeah. Um, it sums up what I feel like. Sometimes I'll even listen to that whilst I'm out shooting in the fog. So. Yeah, Miles Davis kind of blue, legendary. I've heard you describe your work as moody, dark, yet beautiful. Talk to me about how those three elements can coexist in your images. Yeah, I mean, I, I find, like in music, like in jazz, um, things can be sad but beautiful. And so I think you can have the same attributes in photography. That's what I aim to achieve through mine anyway. I find that there is beauty in the moody, atmospheric, evocative type of photography. And so, yeah, I just try and shoot as much of that as possible. On page 35, there's a great image here and you're starting to really develop your creativity and sense of composition, but also I think even technically the color temperature between the foreground and the background, which is City Hall, right? That's correct, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, these, these photos were taken um, a few years after the front cover was shot, for example. And I think at this point, I started to understand color science a bit more, how opposites on the color spectrum look complementary to each other. And so this was me sort of ex experimenting and trying to find that in cityscape settings. And so I shot this photo at blue hour and obviously the opposite of blue is orange. And um, yeah, this orange light is actually from Tower Bridge. So I shot along the backside of Tower Bridge down towards City Hall in London. And the blue of the fog, of the blue hour fog just complemented it nicely. So um, yeah, I'm happy with that one. It's a beautiful shot. Thank you. On page 47, we're starting to get into the nighttime. And I love the words on the opposite page. I love the London nightlife. It's when I feel the most alive. As darkness sweeps away life's distractions, I become deeply in touch with my creative soul. We've shot with you at night, Ron. In fact, we shot with you in a tunnel at night yeah. at close to midnight and it was getting shut down and we didn't. <laughs> get arrested, but almost, which makes for a, a good story. But do you get lost in those moments sometimes where, you know, you, you are riding the adrenaline and, and you're pushing the moment in pursuit of photography and in, in pursuit of your images, not, not of course in a dangerous way, but in a very creative way where you get lost in the moment. Is that right? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I mean, I'm definitely a night owl. Um, I often find that okay. my imagination, like creativity comes out just before I want to go to sleep and then I can't sleep. So I'm mm. up till early hours of the morning. Um, but yeah, there's just something about the nighttime. It's a bit, bit more, pe I find it a bit more peaceful, but then at the same time, it can also be electric and there's lots going on. Starting on page 50, there's a series of images across the famous bridge here some with a single strider walking across, 
some images with the blurry bus, some shots just people making their way to and fro across the bridge, Londoners, probably tourists as well. And then there's other times where you're not on the bridge, but you're stepping back for that kind of epic vantage point. Like, and there's just a lot of layers here with the water and the bridge and the background with the fog. Can you tell me about pages 58 and 59? Shooting fog's quite difficult sometimes because you need to get the distance between your subjects right. Um, you don't want something to be completely obscured because of the fog. You want it just to be there, just peeking its head out or just, just lingering a little bit, just to give you that sense. And so what I'll often do is I'll, I'll have the subject and then find multiple different locations around that subject um, to capture it in different ways. So I think, yeah, that series of images is what I, what I would normally do for um, shooting cityscape photography most of the time. Ron, starting on page 63, and you've already mentioned this in terms of capturing the skyline as it is in that moment because it's constantly changing. And yeah. I look at Big Ben here, the Elizabeth Tower or Clock Tower. I know it goes by many names. Yeah. But I've been to London several times since 2017, and I have not seen <laughs> the tower without scaffolding. So you captured this moment, and from so many different angles, you have to be happy about that. Yeah. Do you know what? <laughs> it's funny because at the time of shooting this, it was almost cliche to shoot Big Ben. Like It had been photographed millions of times. Um, it was everyone's okay. social media. It was like an easy subject for people to shoot. Um, so for me, shooting it in a fog was me sort of putting my, my stamp on it, I guess. Yeah, looking back at it now, I'm so grateful that I did photograph it and didn't listen to the pressures of people saying, oh, it's cliche, it's boring, etc. Because, yeah, it's now, it's been covered up by scaffolding for a number of years now. And now everyone's itching to go and see it again. So, and obviously when it comes back, it's going to be different. So, yeah, it's capturing moments in history. On page 67, this is a beautiful image. It's the front cover of Trope's award-winning London book. There's the icon, the icon is there. Do you find yourself having to spend time there to develop your own eye or to develop the version of the frame that you wanna share? Because it's, it's been shared so many times, but you're looking for that new one. Yeah, I mean, that comes with experience and uh, time-taking mm. photos. It also comes from reading and seeing other photography, other types of photography. Um, and I don't mean just copying other people's styles. I mean, looking at somebody's body of, body of work, looking at how they approach photographing a certain subject, and then maybe taking elements from that and then incorporating it with your own style. So that stuff can only really come after, after time, really, and researching, yeah. In regards to architecture, I think when, when a team builds a new building. I think everyone thinks they have the potential to stand out. We're going to create a new building and this is going to pop itself through the skyline and create some new character in a city. But it's clearly hard to do and it rarely ever happens. The Gherkin, however, has reached that iconic status and it's not a new building anymore, but by London standards it is. What is it about this building that is so beautifully photographed from so many different angles? 
it's just, it's a unique shape, I think. I mean, London's very funny when it comes to naming buildings. Obviously, we've got the Gherkin, the Walkie Talkie, the Cheese Grater. I don't know who comes up with these names, right. but um, the Gherkin <laughs> just is very unique. Um, I mean, a lot of the buildings in London are the typical cityscape block towers, but uh, the, the Gherkin is definitely unique in its design, um, which makes it photogenic. It's a shame now, though, because there are so many new buildings going up, it's getting increasingly harder to, to find vantage points to shoot it from. So um, again, it's important to get out of there and shoot stuff while you can. But yeah, the Gherkin is it's unique in its location as well because it's surrounded by so many different buildings that are of similar heights or even taller. You're able to get multiple vantage points of it. That takes research. A lot of research goes into finding what right. places are accessible. But um, I find that in cityscape photography especially, some of the most unique photos are because of the vantage point that it's been taken from. I know myself, I know a lot of the people in the London book, the Chicago book, that is one of the biggest things that we focus on is finding these vantage points. Another vantage point on page 115, you've got an interesting crop of the gherkin here. Tell me about this photograph. This is one of my favorite photos. Well, both of them are. Um, I think it was taken in 2015, so it was a while ago. Again, it looks nothing like this now. Um, I mean, you can see even in this photo the amount of construction that's happening. All of those, <laughs> right. all of those sites now are taller than the Gherkin, so um, it would be impossible to capture these these images again. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's nice to see uh, the way digital art is is turning at the moment um, with NFTs. The photo on the right, I'm actually turning into an NFT, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I had. Cool. A young um, animator from Poland, years ago, he just he just sent me a DM and he said, "Hey Ron, look what I've done with your photo," and he'd animated the gherkin so that it was spinning. It honestly looks so surreal and so cool. I shared it at the time and it reached like just under fifty thousand views on my Instagram, which was crazy at the time. And um, wow, yeah, it was just insane. So uh, looking at how NFTs have now evolved and the type of stuff that's being made into NFTs. Uh, I reached out to him again only a few days ago and I said, um, hey, would you like to make this an official collab? Should we go into partnership on this thing and release it to the world as an NFT? Um, to which he was really, really excited about. And um, yeah, we're doing a little series of them now. So yeah, excited for that. Can't wait to check it out. On page 118, I love this image, Ron, and the layers. Every time I look at this photograph, I see something new. You've talked about discovering new places and new vantage points. Where are you here? So this photo was shot just by Liverpool Street Station. And um, I mean, I've walked past this place hundreds of times, um, but I'd never seen it like that. It was very strange. I've, I, and still to this day, I've never seen it like that. There was just this huge puddle. Um, I don't know how it got there. It wasn't even a rainy day. It was just there. and. Um, so obviously, I took advantage of that that situation and uh, decided to get to get the shot. It's funny because like people even still still now message me and they say, "Hey Ron, did you take a bucket of water and make that puddle?" And I'm like, "No, it was just there. <laughs> it was just there." Um, and so yeah, it's one. It's a shot I've not really seen uh, replicated. I haven't seen anyone try and take bottles of water there to make puddles, which is quite nice because obviously that stuff happens all the time in photography. Um, so yeah, I like that one a lot. Some of these wide cityscapes 
just show you how epic London is. I mean, do you feel fortunate to have grown up there? Yeah, I'm definitely glad I grew up in London. I love this city. I hate it as well, but I mean, that's like everywhere. It's a love-hate relationship, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I mean, to be able to have London on my doorstep is just, it's brilliant. I mean, there's always so much happening here, so many different types of people to meet. Um, the blend between old and new is just, yeah, it's epic. I mean, I, I love this view of London. It's one of my favorite views. It's from uh, a restaurant called Coq d'Argent, it's a French restaurant. Um, you wouldn't even know it was there unless you went looking for it. It's a very secret little, little um, underpass and there's a lift, doesn't really have any signs. You take the lift up and then it's just a very fancy five-star restaurant and um, it's got its own viewing terraces. And because I've been back there so many times now, um, not only just to eat, but to go and take photos, um, and I often bring people up to show them the views. I've now got a good relationship with them. So if I'm hosting workshops, they'll often let me in with like 10, 15 people, um, which normally most places wouldn't let you do. So There's an image on page 143 that's quite different from the images in the rest of the book. What's the story behind this photograph? Yeah, do you know what? This photo is one of my favorites, I think, of all time. I think it just highlights a number of things that I try and remember, is that uh, you can find great photos in the most unseeming places. So this was taken at the Tate Gallery in London, and uh, there was an installation okay. there which uh, basically produced a lot of fog outside to uh, replicate uh, the feeling of being in uh, a nuclear disaster, what it was like in the aftermath. And so, yeah, I went there just to, to see what I could capture. And it was just the time of day where the light was behind. So everything was backlit and it created this really cool, silhouetted, foggy scene. And um, yeah, so I, I always try and keep that in mind. Look at, look at the unfamiliar places. You might something, find something good there. Um, and also patience. Uh, patience is something that it doesn't come naturally to me. <laughs> Um, <laughs> me either yeah exactly and so I think it's just testament that if you wait and you set up your frame and you're patient and you let um, the scene kind of unfold in front of you you can capture great photos that way as well and so I think I spent around 45 minutes in this one spot uh, just trying to capture what was going on and this was and just a single moment that happened and uh, I was glad I was able to capture it well, you've become quite the expert with fog. You're known as the king of fog in some circles. <laughs> you actually created a guide for Instagram. Tell me about how that came about. Yeah, I mean, I get a lot of questions online and um, in person as well, asking how uh, I predict fog, how I photograph fog. And um, it was just information that people wanted to know, uh, my audience wanted to know. So. Yeah, Instagram released this new feature which allows you to create guides based off the images that you've posted on Instagram, um, add some text and some information to go alongside them. And so, yeah, I decided to put, to get, to put together something that showed people how to predict fog, what apps to use, um, and then example imagery of what settings to, to shoot with, uh, locations to go to to capture fog in London. Um, yeah, just nice cohesive guide for people to follow. And in regards to fog specifically, how, how fleeting is it? 
I mean, can you predict it? How, how, how do you chase it? It was difficulty. <laughs> it's not, yeah. it's not easy to predict. I mean, obviously you can use weather apps. Um, I use uh, Met, Met Office as well um, to, to just analyze weather. There are certain indications you want to look for, like humidity, you want that to be in the 90th to 100 percentile. Uh, temperatures need to be right. Mm. Uh, so there are a whole, a whole sweep of uh, contributing factors that go into, into that. But I mean, you can turn up to the location. Um, normally I go in the very early hours of the morning. That's when it's at its thickest, which means early mm. wake up times, which again is brutal when it hurts, but um, <laughs> it's worth it yeah. for the shot. But yeah, you could turn up at location and the fog could have moved on. It could have passed somewhere else. It could not be as low as you wanted it to be. Uh, there are so many different things. So yeah, there have been multiple times where I've gone out at 5, 6 a.m. in the morning to photograph the fog and it's just not there. Um, and so I've got better at predicting it over time. But yeah, um, it's still difficult. I'm far from a meteorological expert, of course, but it's... I'm assuming similar to clouds in the way that there's many different types, so many different textures. I mean, is there like an ideal fog to shoot in? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's fog that's located around water. Uh, that tends to be the thickest and the lowest. Um, yeah, along the river in London seems to be where it's often thickest. If it is very, very low, and it is really thick, then I'll venture further into the city where you've got the skyscrapers because um, I just love shooting uh, imagery of skyscrapers just going into, into fog. It's just, um, yeah, very eerie. So yeah, I think that's my favorite type to shoot, low, low thick fog. Ron, thank you for sharing all your thoughts on, on the images in your book, just, just some beautiful images. I wanted to ask you, I know that you had a chance to see Chadwick Boseman speak, and I know that was a special event for you. What was the takeaway from that? Um, yeah, well, that was, it was weird because at the time, obviously it was inspirational and it was amazing to see him, but it was only after he passed, unfortunately, that I really valued how much that moment meant to me. Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways from, from that um, actually, I should put it into context. So it was for the premiere of his latest film that he had created um, called 21 Bridges. So I was invited to the London premiere of that and he was there, uh, gave an intro, etc. But one thing he said that really stuck with me was that um, it's important to plant seeds in your own garden and to watch them grow, but it's also important to plant those seeds in other people's gardens. Um, and I just love that. I mean, as I get older and I think about legacy and what change I can I can leave in this world, that for me sums it up. It's not about um, doing things that change the world necessarily, because not honestly, not everyone's going to be able to do that. But if you can do little things that help improve somebody's life or enable someone to learn a new craft or a new technique or learn new or have new experiences. All of these things go into leaving your legacy, I think. So yeah, Chadwick's really summed that up for me. I mean, it's interesting, Ron, some of these skills have taken years for you to master. And you've been on the streets working, you've traveled across the world to get to the accomplished level that you are now. 
yet you choose to create guides for IG, you choose to share how you do things because you're trying to help other people. Is that back to your family? Is that part of who they helped you to become? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been raised that way, just to help and be kind to people, you know, so... Um, I mean, growing up, obviously, my parents being um, in a more academic setting, I guess, uh, me wanting to go into the creative arts wasn't a natural choice for them or something that they wanted me to do. They thought it was a bit risky, um, not as secure as going into like medicine or finance or something, but because I was able to learn from so many people around me and be inspired by so many people around me, uh, people including yourself, like seeing your work ethic and how much, how hard you work, even on the days we were shooting and then you going off to another six places and I don't, I don't know how you did it, honestly. But, um, yeah, just being witness to people like that um, helps me want to pass it on to other people as well and show that they can do it. They can do it too. When you think back a short, roughly maybe 10 years ago, you couldn't have had an idea how much photography would change your life. And just 26 countries in a year and all the places you've been, all the people that you've met that have now impacted your life. Where do you think we are in the journey of Ron Timmin? Um, it's weird because, I mean, I've had accomplishments and I've achieved stuff that I'm very proud of. And I've achieved stuff that when I was starting out in photography, that was the goal. I was like, okay, I want to shoot for Adidas. I want to be a Sony ambassador or all this stuff, but I guess just the way we are as human beings, we're always looking further. We're always looking to the next step. Um, and it is important to look back and uh, just appreciate how far you've come along. I think for me going forward, I would like to see um, myself in more uh, executive producer roles, creating more um, video, uh, more documentary style pieces, um, and just bringing... Cool a bit more thoughtfulness to my work. So I know that I've done a lot of uh, cityscape and beautiful imagery, uh, creating beautiful imagery, but now I'd like to start creating stuff that has more of a purpose or something that can help create change or um, more awareness on different topics. I think that's what I'm gonna push to. Well, starting with Fortitude, which is just a, a beautiful film, a beautiful story, we're excited to see the full story and just proud of you, happy for you, Ron, and all, all things that you've accomplished this year in, a, in an extremely difficult year. You've been able to share some things that are really gonna impact people in a positive way. So thank you for sharing all of your thoughts and, and stories with us. We absolutely love your book, London Fog and the images that you were able to capture. Thank you for being a part of it, man. This was a fun conversation. Thank you, thank you so much. Honestly, it's a privilege to be a part of this and to see so many other talented photographers around the world um, do their thing and just absolutely kill it. So I feel privileged to be a part of that as well. From our Trope family to your family, we wish you all the best. Until next time, take care. See ya. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Ron Timahan, who can be found on Instagram. You can subscribe to Trope Stories wherever you get your podcasts. 
Follow us on Instagram at Trope Reader, find us at trope.com, or on YouTube at Trope Publishing Co., where you can see the video version of this interview. This episode was executive produced by Sam Landers and Terry Mayday, camera and audio Oscar Ayella, production engineer Jeremy Garco, editorial Mayday Productions, music by Universal Production Music, location footage directed by Terry Mayday. Trope Publishing Company is a platform for creators, storytellers, and imaginative business minds. Creative director Scott Yanzi, producer Lindy Sinclair, designer Jack Van Boom, and marketing by Hannah Kopak. You've been listening to Trope Stories. Trope Stories.